This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. More information is on our website. Craig asked me if I would take a little bit of time to, to give a mission update of some of the things that are going on in Sovereign Grace, and I, I'm happy to do so. I, I do this primarily um, to, to invite prayer, because I feel like we're in a place where we need prayer more than ever, and uh, I, I, I feel like I want to appeal for prayer from you. There, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on internationally. Uh, we're not confined to international alone because there's a lot going on nationally too in terms of multiple churches being planted all over the United States. But I wanted to tell you about a couple of things specifically that are going on internationally so that you can be praying for us. First, uh, pray for the Australia church plant. So we're, we're planting a church in northern Sydney, and I want to ask you to pray for that. There's, a, there's a, an extended visa process that the church planter and his family have had to walk through, as well as kind of incorporating the church in another country. And that has hit a lot of snags. And it's, it was actually stopped for a period of time by a government official who was just displaying this inexplicable hostility towards the church plant, towards the idea of the church plant even coming to town. And so there were, there were lawyers involved, and eventually that person was taken off the point of this case, and it appears like it's moving forward. But, but, but we need to pray because I'm not, I'm not surprised that there would be opposition as we begin taking these kind of steps into other nations, specifically to church plant for the glory of God, specifically to preach the gospel, and, and to do it as a part of sovereign grace. I, I think we're called to be there in Australia. I think we have a future there. And so I, oppression and opposition should not in any way surprise us. But I do think it's a call to prayer. So that's one thing you can pray for. Pray for the visa process for the Australian church plant. Um, secondly, sitting at my desk a couple of weeks ago, and I get uh, a series of pictures from Myanmar, Burma, and uh, in Myanmar we have been involved in, in a, a church plant effort in the Irrawaddy Delta among a group of people that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They are an unreached people, they're an unengaged by the gospel, and, uh, and, and we were involved in training the guy who trains the church planters over there who trained some men to go into this area, and then we're funding it as well. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these pictures, and there's, there's people sitting around this hut. I mean, just like you would imagine, just those bamboo poles and this hut, somebody's house, and, and they're doing church. And this is the church we planted. And uh, it's just so exciting to imagine that God is is pushing us out and helping us to see further and to see the gospel go beyond and, and to see some of the ways that God is using even, you know, your, your prayers and your faithful giving so that we can be having an impact outside of the United States and, 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 and play our part to go to the uttermost parts of the world. We, we want to play a part there. We, we haven't always known how to do that or, or what to do. We haven't always felt qualified. We don't feel qualified now, um, but we do feel responsible. We feel like we've come to a place where we've got to play our part, and so we're looking for these opportunities. Pr- probably the most exciting one is, uh, 
is that recently we approved a, a church plant to be planted in one of the five Muslim countries in North Africa. So somewhere in the fall of 2011, we're going to start a church. Actually, there's a, a, a small group of believers that are already gathered there. We're going we're to work with them towards a, a replant into an area in one of those nations and, and plant a church among the Muslims. Now, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about a country and an area where it is against the law to preach the gospel. This is an area where it's, it's against the law, punishable by death, to convert from, from being a Muslim to being a Christian. This is, this is the front lines. And I say that to you not to impress you. I say that to you to say we, we really do need prayer. We need God's wisdom. We want to do this right. We want to have a long-term mentality. We don't want to just go in there with Western expectations that expects that a church is just going to explode. We want to sow faithfully over time, believing that God would bless. So there's just a little bit of what's going on on the international front. And I, I, I just want to share that with you because I think it illustrates the need for us to move together in prayer and just bathe these opportunities so that the Lord really displays his power as, as we go forth. That's what we're praying for. God, let your power be displayed. Let your name be exalted through our feeble efforts as, as we go forward. So thank you very much for your prayers. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. The title of this, the message this morning is The Shrinking Christian. The Shrinking Christian. I want to read beginning in chapter 2, verses 1, and I'm going to go through 11, although the majority of our time is going to be spent on the first three or four verses. But let me begin in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The shrinking Christian, let's, let's pray and let's ask for God's help. 
Lord, I want to ask you right now that you would come and meet us through the preaching of your word, through the proclamation of your holy word. Lord, I pray that there are, I, I, I pray that you would meet individuals that are assembled this morning, that you have called before time to, to arrive today at this meeting, that you would, you would grant them something specific from this passage, something where your spirit engages them in a very personal way, and they know you're speaking, and they have a vision to apply what it is they are to do. Lord, I pray you would do that with me as well, for we all stand under the gaze and assessing work of your holy word. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. There's a, uh, a stream of Christianity known as Methodism. Methodist. You know, my wife was raised a Methodist. If you've asked most Methodists about the origin of their denomination, the founder of their denomination, it's, you're going to hear that it's typically associated with the life and labors of, of John Wesley, which is why it might astonish a Methodist to discover that, according to Arnold Dalimore, their spiritual forefather was not John Wesley, but one George Whitfield. See, John Wesley was actually a leader in, in Whitfield's ministry. He was the guy who was the young, aggressive, ambitious, um, had an extraordinary gift for organization, and he was a lieutenant in Whitfield's ministry. He was emerging. He was an up-and-comer. And Whitfield felt a distinct impression from God that he was to go to the United States to preach the gospel, and he needed to entrust this gigantic ministry to somebody, so he entrusted it to John Wesley. This was a situation where there were a number of congregations and numbering in the thousands and thousands of people. Now, unfortunately, while Whitfield was gone, it appears as if the ambition, um, maybe the selfish ambition of Wesley found opportunity in the absence of Whitfield because what happened was Wesley took over. He began to introduce new doctrines. He began to draw people to himself. Some would say he began to undermine the work and the name of Whitfield within the movement and appointed himself as the head of the movement so that upon returning, Whitfield discovered that there had, in effect, been a coup. And he was presented with a defining moment in his life. What should he do? Would he contend for his role? Should he fight for his rights? Should he divide the people by going to war to win back what was rightfully his? Or would Whitfield find another way? Well, history records that Whitfield shocked his followers and actually the entire Christian world that was looking on at that point when he turned over Methodism to John Wesley and began to assist John Wesley in it. In fact, Dalimore reports it this way, quote, the fact that while refusing to lead his own movement, Whitfield was assisting others, especially Wesley, drew protest from among his people. 
Many of them still refused to accept his resignation. They were determined to consider him their leader, and some called themselves Whitfieldites. They urged him to retain his position, increase his party, and continue the prominence of his name. They reminded him that if he failed to do so, he would not go down in history in the fame and glory that rightfully were his. But Whitfield needed no reminding as to the effect of the decision he had made. He had well considered his action, and to the pleas of the people, he made such replies as, Let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden under the feet of all men, if Jesus may thereby be glorified. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I hear something like that, and it raises a question. It perplexes me, to be honest, because there's a question that just kind of shouts out from that experience and from that quote, which is, why would someone give up such a prominent role, and not just give it up, but give it up only to turn and serve one who historians might describe as robbing Whitfield, having it certainly been disloyal to Whitfield? Some might say, betraying. Whitfield. I want to suggest to you that it's because Whitfield understood the main point of Philippians chapter 2. Whitfield understood that it really is huge to be small. It really is huge to be small. Now, take that thought and just push it aside for a second. And let's get back into the context and come back around to that. Because here we are once again in Philippians. We remember from past study, I'm sure, that the Philippians, they're, they're not a weak church. They're a strong church. Paul, Paul loves this church. Paul loves the Philippians. It, his love is evident throughout the entire epistle. He opens it up in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He, he loves these folk. However... Like all churches, the Philippians have problems. Where you have people, you have problems. Where you have more people, you have more problems. And each church, each local church has unique vulnerabilities, which, if unaddressed by gospel application, can form into weaknesses. And the Philippians were no different. The Philippians had a problem with unity among one another. There was a disunity that characterized their local church, and it was a disunity that was rooted in a conceited rivalry that they had with one another. And this is kind of hinted at or suggested in chapter 4 where Paul talks about the division between Yodi and Syntyche. He appeals for the believers to help them out. But it's addressed even more specifically in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where he just says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. See, they're not of the same mind. So he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So the, the, the Philippians are having this problem. Great church, great people, love the Lord, but they have a problem. And the problem is rivalry. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear that word rivalry? I mean, that's not one we, we hear used very often. Maybe we hear sibling rivalry or 
or we immediately think of the arch nemesis of our high school team, the, the rival across the town. Or, or if you're from Philadelphia, you think of the Dallas Cowboys, or you think of the New York Yankees. They're our rivals. But using those kind of applications doesn't quite explain or capture the Philippian problem. Because rivalry in the New Testament is, is often translated as selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. In fact, it's described in Galatians chapter 5 as one of the works of the flesh. And so when we talk about rivalry, we're talking about a, a, a form of self-promotion that stokes a competition among the people where it plays out. So, as an example, it, it, it's the person who can never be wrong, you know, the person that can never be wrong because to be wrong would be to cede a position of strength in the relationship. Or maybe it's the person who, who always needs to have the last word because they're too proud to allow anyone else to have the last word, always need to have a sense of the upper hand. And, and they bring into the experience of relationship this sense where I must be first, I must be regarded, I must be considered, I must be the best. And if you don't meet my demands, I will dismiss you. I will dispense with you. I will ignore you. I will ultimately supplant you. So as we begin to understand rivalry, that's, that's what begins to take shape in that New Testament word. But there's also another component of it as well. And that is, it's not just a sense of self-exaltation where we're competing with another person, but there's also a quality of envy and jealousy where we are contending with someone because we resent the blessings that they are enjoying. So Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 1. He talks about it in verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So he's saying, there are these people, they're preaching Christ out of rivalry. They're preaching it not to proclaim Jesus Christ, but to afflict me. See, that's the effect that rivalry has in the community. There's this horizontal effect where one believer seeks to afflict another because of this undercurrent of competition. Out of envy, out of jealousy, we want to afflict. We make rivals because other people are experiencing what we want for ourselves. We see them and we perceive them to be, I don't know, better looking or... Maybe if it's a, a sibling, they get more attention at the family gatherings or, or they got higher grades than us in school or their kids seem to behave better in public or there's sports achievements involved or something. In other words, we want it, they get it, so we act on our jealousy and we punish them. Or we want it and they want it, so we compete with them in a manner that seeks to afflict them. It's this horizontal word that talks about how, how the community punishes one another in its endeavor to exalt themselves. It's, it's Wanda Holloway. Remember in the 90s, uh, she's competing for a cheerleading spot, and she decided to get the edge by, I think it might have been her mother, hired a hitman to kind of whack the mother of, the, of another of the girls, and, and it didn't happen 
Unfortunately, she was unsuccessful. But, but there, it, that, that act embodies the darkness of this word. So the point is that, that there are times where our ambitions can, can swell with self in such a way that it not only affects us and our relationship with God, but it affects the community. It begins to defile other people and actually delivers us to a place where we think we're going to be most satisfied by punishing them because they have what we want. This is what was going on in the Philippian church. And it had two effects on the Philippian church, and it has the same effects on us as well. First, it created this undercurrent of disharmony. When, when, when 2 Corinthians 12 translates this word, it uses the word disorder. So it's selfish ambition, but it's also disorder. James says, where there is selfish ambition and jealousy, there is disorder and every evil thing. So the effect of it is disunity a lack of harmony, disorder. Relationships are destroyed. The witness of the church is compromised. Churches are split because people fundamentally almost inherently disdain those who have a naked commitment to themselves. We disdain it even if we have a naked commitment to ourselves, but when we see it in other people, we hate that. And and there's a desire to kind of punish that person. So, So there's this undercurrent of disharmony. But there's a second effect as well, and that's this. Our souls shrink. Our souls shrink. I'm talking metaphorically here, but, but what I'm trying to say is that something happens within us when our love, when our desires, when our ambition is confined to self. Our souls shrivel up when we live life just trying to be great at the expense of other people. I like the way E. Stanley Jones once said it. He said, quote, we grow great. I'm sorry, we grow small trying to be great. We grow small trying to be great. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, just just think about how you think about Wanda Holloway when you hear her story or maybe some of the impressions that are left about Wesley after reading Dalimore or hearing about what Dalimore said. Think about how you feel when you encounter anyone who it's evident that they are dedicated to their own satisfaction, their own advancement, their own glory, and they will oppose anyone who seeks to deprive them of that. Now, here's the point, and here's where we're driving. The Christian according to Philippians 2, the Christian is always shrinking. The only question is whether it's going to be in pursuit of God's glory or our own glory, but the Christian is always shrinking. The only question is whether we're going to be small in our own eyes or small in the eyes of others, but the Christian is always shrinking. We either grow small trying to be great or we grow great before God trying to be small, but the Christian is always shrinking. One way or another, shrinking happens. Jesus said, the greatest among you must become like a servant. Paul said, count others as more significant than yourself. The essence of all that is this. It's really huge to be small. It's really huge to be small. So, the body of what I want to talk about today is just what, 
what is gospel-centered shrinking? What does that look like? Maybe another way to frame the question is, how do we apply verse 5? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How do we do that in relationship to rivalry and vain conceit? I've got, I've got three points. Here's the first one. First, it's perceiving how Christ counted. It's perceiving how Christ counted. Now, again, let's remember the context. Philippians are experiencing disunity. Philippians have some strain in their relationships because there is this self-promoting quality among some of the believers. There is this self-interest that governs the life and the decisions within the community among some of the believers. So what does Paul do? Paul answers that problem with a sweeping vision of the Savior's humility that specifically reminds us to have this mind in ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, which is illustrated in Christ Jesus. But even beyond that, it's already made yours in Christ Jesus. And what, what, what Paul tries to do under the inspiration of the Spirit, what he accomplishes under the inspiration of the Spirit, is he, he targets for us then how exactly Christ counted certain things. Look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself Nothing. So Paul, all of a sudden, he's got these Philippian believers, certain believers, they, they, their self-opinion is exaggerated. They're having problems with one another. The problem is rivalry. They're competing. They're afflicting each other. How does Paul answer it? He takes them to the gospel. He takes them to Jesus Christ, and he begins talking to them about how Christ counted his rights, how Christ counted his privileges, how Christ counted his experience of glory even prior to the incarnation. See, we've got to think about what's happening here because this is fascinating. To answer the stifling self-exaltation of certain Philippian believers Paul returns to the gospel, but not just the gospel in a, in a generic, abstract sense, but to specific and stunning features of the gospel, like he did not count equality as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Behind every experience of rivalry is someone who's trying to make themselves something. Behind every experience of rivalry is a person grasping at prestige, grasping at position, grasping at something, and demand that they be treated in a certain way or they need to compete with anyone who threatens them in their pursuit of that thing. And in response to that, Paul does something that is amazing. He offers the Savior, but offers him as one who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. He didn't live a grasping life, always grasping after what he wanted, always grasping after what was his due, always grasping after his rights. So what what we have here is we have Paul troubleshooting a specific problem in a specific church. So to this people that are divided because they're just talking smack and, and fighting turf wars, Paul 
introduces the pre-existence and incarnation and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And he reminds them that Christ himself made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. That when you look at Christ, you're not just looking at him in his glory, but you're looking at someone who renounced his rights, who renounced his role, who renounced his glory to a certain extent, so that others would be served. That's an important point so that others would be served. Because Paul loops back around then and calls them to a higher plane, not simply because they have to muster it up in themselves, but because they have a Savior who went before them and renounced and then turns and calls them to do the same thing. So it's almost like Paul is saying, Philippians, the the answer to your problems with self-exaltation is real simple. You must shrink. And the way to shrink is for Christ to increase. The way to shrink is to consider Christ. That's why Paul, after after isolating the problem, immediately takes them back to the gospel and takes them back to what took place in Christ's incarnation and just tries to bring a little perspective to these Philippians that are grasping after the smallest, at at times the stupidest things, And so what Paul does is he takes them to God and reminds them if God of the universe could empty himself of the glory and prerogatives that he had before the incarnation, could humble himself, could come and kneel and serve, and could ultimately die, then perhaps, O Philippians, perhaps, Dave, you can get over your bad little self. Perhaps in one's relationship with the spouse and the kids, and the community, you too can serve because he emptied himself. By the way, Christ's self-emptying, I mean, that, that's an unrepeatable act. It's not like I can make a clear comparison between Christ doing that and, and something that I've done. There's no real parallels that I can offer you. I can't immediately move into an illustration where I'm talking about one time when I was on the bus and, and a, a woman walked on and I was sitting down and she was standing up and I decided to empty myself of the right that I had to sit in. You know, all those things just break down when we begin talking about the person of the Trinity described in Scripture as the Son emptying himself of the glory and the prerogatives that he had prior and stuffing that into a human body and dying on our behalf. But Paul, God, speaks specifically to our commitment to our own self-interest through the gospel and gives us better news than the news that we're pursuing by being committed to our own self-interest. See, the gospel announces that there's something greater in life than just a radical commitment to your own self-interest. There's something greater than that. Here's what it is. The gospel announces that we have the interest of God, that the interest of God has turned our way in the gospel, that that God loves us, and that God, the God of the universe, has chosen to occupy himself with us down to the very detail of every hair on your head. 
And so the cross reveals this breathtaking glory of God that draws our heart away from our own self-interest because it announces that God's actions have already taken place in our best interest. In other words, we don't need to live zealously devoted to our own self-interest because God has already acted in our best interest at the cross. And that makes Christ lovely. And that makes Christ compelling. And the more lovely Christ appears, the more I'm drawn away from myself. He gets big and I get small. And the more relationships and the purpose of relationships change because relationships become this context. Well, let me say it this way. Relationships then require renunciation in order to work. In other words, Paul is trying to tell the Philippian believers that, boy, if you're going to make this work, you can't, you've got to look out for the welfare of other people. You've got to think of them as more significant than yourself. You've got to renounce certain assumptions about yourself. Relationships require renunciation. Relationships aren't a place to exploit one another but to deny oneself. They're not a place where we use each other, but we defer to one another. We don't compete with each other, but we care for each other. We don't inflate our ego at the expense of each other, but verse 3, we do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant and look not only to our own interests, verse 4, but also to the interests of others. It's really, 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 really huge to be small. Point number two, it's, it's counting others higher. It's counting others higher. I just read verse three, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We count others in a certain way. So we just talked about how Christ counted. Now we're looking at how we count, and we're called to count others as more Significant. So the prescription for the Philippian self-significance is, is surprisingly, it's not withdrawing from others as if community is really the problem. And so if I just pull back from the community, that'll solve the problem. In fact, it's not internalizing our gaze so that we just have to go on a sin hunt because there's pride in our heart. Well, there's pride in everybody's heart. You go down into there and you do nothing but study your heart and you'll be there for the rest of your life. It's interesting that Paul defines the solution as, in humility, elevating other people. Elevating other people. In other words, the fight for unity, the fight for humility, is not, does not, is not waged successfully by being preoccupied with finding pride, but by pursuing humility and pursuing humility in a particular way. In humility, count others. How do we count them? Count others more significant than yourself. So there's this call for a shift in how we value other people. It's a shift from self to saints, from self to Savior. Our consideration for others becomes an important way in how we define success in relationships. And the sin of pride in relationship, the sin of rivalry, is attacked by going up to Christ in the gospel and then going out to other people by making them more significant, not by going down into us. This particular sin is suffocated as we elevate other people. 
So real humility is connected to how we count, how we count the Savior, how we count others. Real humility is connected to how we count others, and how we count others is connected to the cross. So let me just apply this a little bit. What, what, what might this mean for application? Well, here's one thing. It means we count other people's opinions as essential, as essential. Now, I, I didn't say as scriptural. I just mean that other people's opinions are essential. They're essential to my future. They're essential for my godliness. They're essential for the preservation of my humility. And so we must treat people's ideas and perspective on us as if they have a high value to us. I'm not saying that they're right in the way they perceive us, but there should be a culture that we are ever creating in our speech and our actions that basically communicates, your opinion matters to me. Your opinion matters to me. Recently, uh, Jared, senior pastor of the the church I come from, Covenant Fellowship in Philadelphia, uh, he was invited to, to do a speaking uh, to speak a message at a certain place. And he asked me my opinion on whether he should take it. And I looked it over. I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. And uh, he dropped it immediately. And, and the message was clear to me that my, my opinion matters to him. My opinion is large in, in his mind. Here's the thing, and here's why I'm giving you this illustration. Jared could have disagreed with me and ended up in a different place and gone and taken that speaking engagement and still applied verse 3. See, there's got to be a way to apply verse 3 and still be people of conscience. There's got to be a way to apply verse 3, even when we're unpersuaded that somebody else's opinions or perspective on us is accurate. Because the goal is not agreement, it's humility. The goal is not agreement, it's humility. It's stewarding relationships so that people in our life know your questions are my questions. Your, your questions matter to me. And I'm not impressed with my own opinion because I want to know yours. I'm not huge. I am small. So it means we count their opinions as essential, which also means counting their opinions as essential also means we count correction as important. Correction is just where other people think I might improve. We count other people's perspective on areas I might need to improve. We count that as important. So ask yourself this question. Would would the way I relate to the correction of my spouse or my friends or maybe the people at my job, would the way I relate to correction telegraph that I think it's significant or would it telegraph, does it telegraph that I think it's really unnecessary? See, I think significant, verse 3, counting others more significant than ourselves. I think significant means we're always moving towards a person that's bringing perspective on us because we know the temptation is to move away from them, is to alienate them or, or label them in a certain way. And you know why this is important? This is important because not everyone here is still in their 20s, and not everyone here is still in their 30s. In fact, not everyone here is still in their 40s and 50s. And I've noticed that the older we get, the harder it is for for perspectives to penetrate our heart. 
because there can be a growing significance that we attach to our own opinions that is a function of having lived life for a longer time and maybe even been successful in the way that we've applied our Christianity in certain ways. You know, I, I, was, in a, I was in a team meeting recently um, where I was advocating a specific approach to a problem we were discussing, and as we went around the room, everyone was opposed to the way that I was thinking about it, and we actually ended up doing something else. And I was just kind of monitoring what was going on in my heart, and I was scared at the temptation that I began to see as seeing myself as the protector of truth in the group, as the upholder of justice, as the one who really understood God's will, rather than counting others as more significant than myself. If the entire group's lining up united, then, boy, why can't I have faith to believe God could speak through them? You know, here's the thing, and this is, this is a burden that I have. I, people often stumble as they get older, not because they're growing wiser, but because they're growing bigger, bigger in their own eyes, because it's easier to assume that everything is fine. It's easier to assume that everything is okay. And there is a sense, it's the same sense we bring in into parenting teens. The, the assumption for, for, for many parents that don't have teenagers is you put in all the time prior to the teen years, and then you just glide on the fruit of what you've put in prior. And then you go into the teen years and you realize, wow, it's not like that at all. It's similar with life. You, you assume that I invest in 20s, 30s, and 40s, and I'm just going to be able to live off of the fruit of that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, not realizing that, boy, I've got to fight even harder in those later years because there's a whole new kind of temptation that's coming at me. And if I just live life assuming that I've got it locked down, that I've got this, this pride in where I've arrived at, I'm being set up for a fall. I, was, I don't have a chance to read a lot of business books, but I was reading Jim Collins' book on How the Mighty Fall. If you're familiar with his work, Good to Great, this is basically the next book, which is Great to Disaster. It's how great companies fall. And he talks about how there is this stage of success where, where, where a company, and I think this can, be a, this can apply to an indiv- individual as well, where where a company or an individual just begins to become convinced that they're right. That they're right because it's, it's resulted in success in the past. And, and there's this, he calls it a hubris, that begins to define the culture of the company. And, and the high opinion that they have of themselves begins to unintentionally, inadvertently, but absolutely breed neglect of the company. And we don't need to go to Jim Collins to substantiate this. I mean, we see this all throughout Scripture. Saul is hiding among the baggage, has such a small opinion of himself. He's going to be king. Where is he? He's hiding among the baggage. He feels so unworthy. And it's only a few years later that he ends up putting himself in Samuel's place and seeking to kill his replacement, David, rather than making a way for his replacement. His replacement becomes his rival. Remember that word? His replacement becomes his rival. And that's what happens. 
we end up standing for values that we're not fighting to embody. You know what I mean by that? You know, we're, we're a sovereign grace church. We're sovereign grace. We believe in humility. We talk about humility. We sing about humility. We discuss it in small groups. We're just not doing it real well. And so we end up standing for a value that we're not fighting to embody. We're standing for humility, but we're not practicing it very well. By the way, my, just so you know, just to go into a little gospel moment, my hope for this area is not in my ability to discern every evidence of pride in my life. My hope is in a gracious Savior who died for my sins and provides the wisdom for me to see, the Spirit to convict me, and the sustaining grace for me to persevere. But that shouldn't prevent me or you from asking questions that need to be asked, like, would those that know me best say that I'm growing more humble as I get older? Why why wouldn't we be growing more humble if we're knowing the Savior better, spending more time in the Word over the years? Why wouldn't we be growing more humble? So am I growing bigger or am I shrinking? Do I really believe it's huge to become small? Okay, last point. It's, It's making others successful. Verse 4, that each of you look not only for his, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there is the sense where we count other people's welfare first. Their interests become our interests. Because rivalry, when it's in operation, seeks to subordinate the interests of other people. In fact, it goes to irrational lengths to protect our own concerns, our own way of doing things, our own agenda. And, and, and this happens, I mean, in the most mundane moments of life. You're driving down the road, come to a four-way stop sign, you approach it at the same time as the other person, and we begin to compete to see who gets the right of way, both moving into the intersection slowly. Who's going to give? Who's going to be the one who wins? Who's going to be the victor? Thank God I'm the victor. It lets me get to the place that I'm going three or four seconds earlier. You know, rivalry underlies a lot of road rage. This rivalry category underlies a lot of road rage. And so Paul is hitting the nail on the head. He's saying that a humble person is a counter. They count themselves a certain way. They count the Savior a certain way. And they count the interests of other people in a certain way. They empty themselves. They count others as more significant Because we're all called to live a life where we're involved and engaged with other people, and we're all called to live a life where we're probably serving people over us and serving those under us. And so this passage has to be applied in those kind of contexts because we all serve those under us. We've got kids, we've got employees, we've got teams, we've got maybe a wife if you're here as a husband, or you serve those over you. You've got a boss, you've got a leader, you've got a parent, you've got husbands, whatever. The call that comes to us is, don't look out merely for your own interests. This is not saying don't look out for your interests. Of course we do that. It's saying don't confine your world. Don't confine your definition of relationship as being just about you, just what you need. But look out for the welfare of other people. Liberate your agenda to include them. Take the passion and the concern that we bring for our own agenda and do unto others as you would have them 
do unto you. Now, just for a second, let's imagine together how applying that could transform a local church, how it might transform a marriage or a job or a friendship. Imagine Imagine how if you and I were in a relationship, how it would affect you if you were convinced that I was in it for you as well as myself, but I was in it for you too. Teenagers, imagine what would your friendships be like if, if we weren't using other people's weaknesses just to get a laugh. You know, you become aware of somebody's weaknesses. You make a joke about it in front of the other people. Everybody laughs. That person feels like an idiot. You feel superior. Our willingness to make others a success is a great measure of the clarity of our humility. Our willingness to make others a success is a great measure of the purity of our ambitions. It really tells us and reveals whether we understand that it's really, really, really huge to be small. And that's what's modeled for us in the Lord Jesus Christ And that's what was modeled for us in Whitfield's ministry as well. Let me read you this quote just in wrapping up about Whitfield's perspective on this whole thing. It is evident, however, that Whitfield's decision to relinquish his leadership was one that moved him to the very depths of his being. When he had first burst into fame at the beginning of his ministry and had been at the center of an almost unparalleled popularity, He had turned a deaf ear to the praise of men and had been concerned only to be worthy of the commendation of God. And in this present renunciation of earthly position, this attitude was repeated, and it was not in any reluctance, but rather with deepest willingness and with joy that he turned from the place of prominence and became, as he said, simply the servant of all. See, Whitfield didn't need to contend or compete for being top dog because he saw another day. He saw the final day where there was really only one name that dropped people to their knees. And it wasn't John Wesley. It wasn't Whitfield. It wasn't kings and politicians. It wasn't yours. certainly wasn't mine. He, He saw the reality of verse 9 and 10. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God help us see that as well. May God help us to see what Whitfield saw. May God help us to see what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to see, that our lives might be transformed by this simple truth, that it's really huge to be small. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be small. Help us to be small not by now going into our heart and seeking to ferret out all of the pride that exists. We are confident that you can accomplish that by revealing areas of pride that we need to work on, Lord. But help us to be small by intentionally elevating other people. And let that begin today. 
and let it be done for the advancing and exaltation of your name. And it is in that name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.